The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome, Welcome. to Data Welcome. Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Data Gurus. This is Seema Vasa, your host. Today, I have Ted Pulsiver joining me. He is the Executive Vice President of Enterprise Solutions at the Schlesinger Group. Welcome, Ted. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Ted, you've had an amazing career. Just share with our listeners, you know, kind of your career path to this point. Sure. Yeah. And again, great to be here. Thank you so much for making time. You know, most of my career started in the technology space. So I uh, worked for some larger companies like General Electric and AOL, which dates myself that I'm clearly in my mid 40s because AOL used to be a powerhouse when I was in my 20s in a large internet company. So, you know, after working in technology, I spent probably my favorite year was the year I spent working in the wine business, which I really enjoyed and kind of checked a box of a lifelong dream to really work and understand everything about wine and importing wine and selling and distributing wine. But then I knew eventually it'd be time to grow up again and get back into a career that had more regular hours and other types of advantages. So coming from technology, I was actually recruited into market research really to work for a company called Peanut Labs that did a lot of sampling in real time through applications on Facebook. And so interestingly enough, I didn't have much of a background in quantitative research or zero background in quantitative research, zero background in market research, but a high understanding of technology, how technology innovates, how change is forced. And, you know, so I joined about 12 years ago. And interestingly enough, at the time, it was having discussions with folks about how, you know, we need to use non-traditional sources of sample and recruit people through applications that lie on social media, or else you will not get young people to take surveys. And then was fortunate enough to be part of an acquisition into uh, Research Now, now known as Dynata, and then really launched my career for about three years at uh, Federated Sample, now known as Lucid, joined MarketCube as a partner in 2014, and then we successfully exited and sold our business into Schlesinger in early 2020, actually late February 2020, which you may remember was right at the cliff before everything stopped. So I count my blessings there. Amazing. Wow. You've really, in a short amount of time, you spanned some really great companies and have, have gained some really good experience. Yeah, it's been a really fun journey. I think sort of outside of industry and thinking about just the personal, my personal journey, it sort of started at some very, very large companies. So GE back in the Jack Welch days and when AOL was a large company merged with Time Warner, back down to sort of the startup size and really industry changing companies that always led on technology and innovation. And then joining MarketCube as a partner to really help grow our business in the US and internationally. Now kind of back again with a large, you know, multi $200 million business is, is a lot of fun. So it feels a little full circle. So that's great. I would imagine, and we'll talk about this, but I'll imagine you could adjust really well into the larger company, given your experience. Yeah. It's funny. Just sort of think about that on the fly. I think that did help me a lot. You know, it's great. There's so many advantages to being part of a 50-year-old organization that has clients everywhere. And so one of the things I've really enjoyed is 
a lot of the products and the technology and the things that, we, that we've built and learned from at MarketCube is kind of applying that into the Schlesinger Group. And we're making a big effort to become more of a ResTech organization and, and have a heavy focus on technology with some other acquisitions and innovation that we're doing. And it's been really great to kind of have this larger stage to talk to clients about how we can help them with research. That's great. So I talked to, on the investment banking side, I talked to a lot of founders and executive teams and you know, this decision to sell their company or one's company is a big one. I mean, it's not a light decision. How did you and your partners decide it was time to sell? Yeah, you know, it's funny. We can talk about all these metrics and valuation and growth and all those things sort of play a role. I mean, obviously, if you're not performing well and you have a lot of debt, I mean, it can be harder to sell. And just like a house, you know, there's you want to sort of try to find a good time and a good neighborhood and everything to work in your advantage. So I think step one is having those things largely line up. And then for me personally, it's a lot about feeling and emotion and knowing that, you know, this sort of feels like the right time to broaden out and go. You know, our setup was slightly unique in that we had four partners. And so it does require agreement and everybody to be on the same page. So a lot of that comes down to how personal your personal life feels and where, you know, whether you're ready to, to take the next challenge. But For us, it just really felt natural. I mean, we reached a really, really high growth rate in 2018, 2019, and powered all the way through the beginning of 2020. Ultimately had a great 2020 other than a terrible Q2, which I think a lot of our friends had, you know, not uh, immune from that. But ultimately, I think it just sort of feels like the timing's right and you start to engage folks and kick the tires on what makes sense. And I think the interest we got back helped validate that and go through that process. So. Yeah. And I think you make a really good point. I think when you have partners, that agreement before you kick off a process or before you even entertain something is so critical. Otherwise it just creates major chaos. For sure. And I would imagine you timed it right to sell the company, but Schlesinger probably timed it well too, because the qualitative side of the business in 2020 as an industry was largely impacted. So how did that come into play as it related to kind of help fuel qual through some of the assets that you brought in from MarketCube? Yeah. So I guess there's a fine line between timing things perfectly and being lucky and also being unlucky. So I think all those things kind of play a role. I mean, for us, we had, you know, the online sample space and quantitative data collection. I don't want to say it was largely unscathed. I mean, certainly there were moments last year where things were really dire for our staff, for our employees, for our respondents and offices and all those things that all the challenges that everybody faced. But the beautiful thing about doing online work is that it scales and it kind of forces change. So within, you know, the sort of the legacy market cube business, which is now part of Schlesinger and Schlesinger Quantitative Solutions, you know, we did really well because we had more people that may have done in-person research migrate to online. So that was perfect. For the larger company, of course, in-person focus groups is really sort of an extension of the hospitality business. And just like a lot of hotels and airlines and Disney World and resorts, a lot of that we had to, you know, close and make hard decisions on. But fortunately, right after Market Cube acquisition, we did acquire 2020, as you mentioned. And that digital qualitative platform was a huge boost for our business. I mean, it was already very, very strong and growing. But if I had to pick sort of the single most impactful thing, we had a large list of clients that have done work with us in a qualitative way in person for years. Some of that's absolutely required. You know, I want you to taste this soda and I want to see what it's like. And, you know, all things being equal, we really want to be in the same room. But, you know, a lot of our customers express interest in doing digital qual, but we're just kind of waiting for that nudge or comfortable doing things the way they used to do it in person. 
And what we saw is that was an accelerator for change, largely in a good way. Uh, so those two units were really powerful for us. In the last yeah, I think years. a lot of companies, a lot of people were forced, to, there was no choice. You kind of had to accelerate in a big way. And I continue to think about the fact that I don't think we go back to normal. I think we just evolve into a new kind of state of our industry, not good or bad, just different. The whole saying of the new normal, I absolutely hate it, but I also find myself saying it twice a week (laughs) because I think anybody that thinks that they know what November or January of next year are going to look like, I just really don't think they know. I certainly, a lot of these changes are sticky and leveraging technology to add scale and save money though. I feel like that will be a sticky one with our clients. I agree with that. And I think the ability to be flexible to whatever may come in November or even next year, be like the critical blocks of resilience and scale for growth. Well, we had the good fortune of meeting at SampleCon recently, which was great. I think it was the first in-person conference for the industry. It was, yeah, earlier in July. And the funny thing was, I think half the time I felt like I was at a wedding. (laughs) I remember grabbing you and Rachel and doing a selfie and sort of things that I normally don't put on LinkedIn. I just felt right to be like, I got a hug from Seema. I got a hug from, it's just, it was, my thoughts on it, I'll start with the emotional side. You know, SampleCon was something that originated at uh, Lucid, and I was lucky enough to be at every single SampleCon from the very first one where we came up with it in a boardroom of an idea to get users together and people talking about sampling and then expanded out to a larger scope in the industry. So there's sort of a point of pride of just going to them all and seeing everybody and also not just going to it every year, but seeing how every year it's different. And every year it's in a different city now. It's got a different set of users, different sponsors, and of course, different board of directors. And so that's really fun. But honestly, most of it for me was just kind of the emotion and the pride of seeing people. And for the folks that didn't get to go, they did a great job of having a lot of events outside. It was a little hot and sweaty at times, but it was great to be outside and then really good content as well. Yeah. Yeah. I felt the same way. I thought, first of all, it was just amazing that we could be in person, like after such a long period of time and then just taking that in and saying, we are here. And then, you know, I was speaking to another colleague of mine and I just felt like the veneer was off too. People were like, how are you doing? Oh, everything's great. I felt like there was more honesty and, you know, it's been up and down. And I actually, I think I spoke to, I told Rachel, I'm like, I'm going to have to stop having tears in my eyes every time I see person. But I think we've all become more human, hopefully. Yeah, I would definitely add that, sort of echo that, that where these events where, you know, certainly we've known each other for years and we have lots of clients that we see and competitors and everything all at once, uh, where it used to be, what's your earnings per click? How much money can we do? Now it's kind of like, how's your mom? Yeah, exactly. I know when I talked to you before, you know, you hadn't seen her in a year and just to have that sort of humanization a lot of that carried over onto the stage into the sessions about we can use respondents and survey takers, but my favorite parts where everybody said, remember, these are humans. We're all humans. This was the most human sample con ever. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And we covered some hot topics. You know, I think what was the most salient topic that resonated for you at SampleCon? Well, I think the humanization part for sure, you know, I really enjoyed the opportunity that I had to narrate a panel that was sort of about how traditional techniques are merging together. So this is one of the first times that we talked about qualitative research in a larger way on stage. I also, you know, a lot of really good topics. I really enjoyed Roddy Knoll's presentation about how buyers can do better. That was the really good sort of collaborative backwards look. I certainly learned things that we could do better as a supplier in that as well. And I thought the Q&A, just sort of the questions and answers after every session was a lot more candid 
And there was also some presentations that sparked a nerve and got some really good questions up. But I think that's really good because sometimes it's sort of agree or disagree. It's great to see passion. It's great to see debate. And it was great to see really good questions in the room. Yeah, I agree with that. Just talk a little bit about your panel as it related to quantitative and qualitative. What were the kind of the key themes that came out of that discussion? Well, you know, I'll preface this. So every time you sort of write a discussion guide, for example, you want to come up with this catchy, edgy title to get everybody there. And, and usually the truth is somewhere in the middle. So I really believe that traditional quantitative and traditional qualitative are methodology to be here for a long, long time and are very, very appropriate. So we think that we'll have a lot of clients and we're already seeing it. Our facilities are booking up really in record paces, which is great. And we think that, you know, sort of the way that research has been done will continue to be done. I guess my goal was to keep an eye on things that are emerging that shouldn't be ignored. And one of them is just sort of this concept that I got from my colleague, Isaac Rogers, about, you know, some of the newer clients or potential acquisition targets or small companies that we're talking about they don't really talk about quantitative and qualitative. So what we've seen is brands and tech startups, they talk about getting answers to questions. So spending time kind of exploring that and just putting it out there on the table and knowing that it's a reality that we see a lot of really smart you know, businesses that are leveraging social media and they're not afraid to pay people to answer questions. And they don't really know, is this a seven question quantitative survey or is this quant and qual hybrid together? So knowing that that research is happening, I think is really pivotal and seeing that more and more folks are doing quantitative research and then engaging in qualitative throughout it, or what we define it as researchers and people that support researchers may not be as important to this emerging customer base that just wants answers from customers or answers from potential customers. So exploring the fringes of that was fun for us. Yeah. And I think that speaks to the trend that, you know, our ecosystem is broadening to different buying groups, Yep. right? It's not just consumer insights in a brand. Obviously the research agencies are there and are always important, but yeah, product managers, marketing managers, brand managers, they want answers to their questions and they're getting them in, in different and creative ways. Yeah. And one of my favorite things to see, Seema, and I don't know if you see this in your business as well, but you know, in looking at sort of, we do a lot of work with clients directly, brands directly. We also support exchanges and other people that give us a lot of exposure to global clients. One of my favorite things to do is sort of look at those reports each quarter and each year and see how the buyers from us have changed. And there's new companies that are purchasing research from us that didn't exist two or three years ago mm -hmm. and uh, are doing pretty interesting things. So I just think we all need to really keep an eye on that and loop them in. Yeah, I completely agree with you. So let's talk about the buyers. Obviously, very smart professionals trying to make key business decisions as it relates to the insights they gather. But what are some of the things that, from your perspective, buyers need to consider as it relates to procuring sample? And actually, I think you wrote a white paper on this. Ted, right? I did. I did. Yeah. So thank you for a uh, shameless plug. I appreciate that. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> yeah. So we just uh, posted something called selecting a sample partner with confidence. And we were fortunate enough to have it picked up by Green Book. And we appreciate our friends over there. And it's available on our website. And really the idea is the types of questions that people should ask. So just to sort of dovetail off of newer companies that are purchasing our research in general, our global research, companies like Feedback Loop and Morning Consult, and there's so many more to name that, that didn't really exist five, six, seven years ago or two or three years ago in some cases. So while they're getting answers to questions, there's also a lot of things that they should ask all of us and talk to sampling partners. So the white paper really outlines different parameters around, you know, what incentives do you use? Where are your panels strong globally? 
who do you partner with? How do you partner with them? And so I kind of look at the analogy like mechanics, uh, if you think about buying a car. So if you think about earlier in July, all of us that went to SampleCon that eat and breathe and sleep and live this every day, if we were all the equivalent of car mechanics, we know all the questions to ask and kick, uh, open up the hood and zero to 60 and Bluetooth. You know what the terms mean. We know what the, the implications of the terms. Yeah, exactly. That's right. But the reality is that there's a lot of newer buyers and people that may buy sporadically that may do a lot of qualitative research and then just a little bit of quantitative work. So this is designed to be a guideline of sort of the types of questions to ask, you know, with, I guess, a couple key insights. And one of them I'll touch on, you know, around COVID, we did a large survey in the the end of last year, we surveyed 18,000 respondents globally. And we found out that about 45% of them were taking more surveys during the lockdown and during the pandemic, right? So opportunities to both sort of share opinions because they're not out there talking to friends and family and coworkers as much. And then one of the things that we expected to see as a trend is early on, we saw really high adoption of desktop surveys. So for a long time, and I'll speak for really historic market cube, and I think this dovetails into the industry as well, you know, from sort of 2012 on, we see a higher adoption of mobile versus desktop almost every year and sometimes linear in a linear fashion and other times really in a parabolic rise uh, based on the year. And so in the very beginning of COVID, we saw a higher adoption of desktop surveys, but then throughout it, we actually saw a higher rate of mobile. So that sort of trend of more people doing things on their phone continued. But yeah, I encourage everybody to take a look. There's a lot of just good information that can help you ask the right questions and really think about questions you may not know to ask. So I'll finish my uh, analogy here. So if we're all sort of car mechanics that do this, Seema, if you went out to buy a car tomorrow, you would know all those things to ask. But a lot of people buy a car once every three years. They're not a car person. So this is an attempt to um, give them the right sort of questions to ask. Let's talk about incentives because that's a very common discussion. You know, what do people want as a as kind of that quid pro quo in terms of their opinion and their completion of a survey to what incentives they've received? And, and I think you have a perspective on this that I wanted to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll certainly say it through my company's eyes as a lens, and I think this would hopefully extrapolate out to the larger industry. But certainly, every as I talk about in here, every panel is different, and how they recruit and how they incentivize is different. I think that a couple of things that we saw is number one. People, and I'm starting to use people instead of respondents, so catch me if you see me saying the R word, but when people go in to take our surveys, you know, a couple of things. One is they don't necessarily robotically think I have to complete this survey and I get paid or I don't and I'm bad and I don't get paid. So one of the things that we suggest that we started doing a few years ago is incentivizing people for just updating their profile, incentivizing them for attempting surveys, all this type of behavior, I think, gives you more information about the people taking the surveys can help you map them to the right survey. So that's sort of the easy start. But when it comes to all the way to incentives, what we've heard loud and clear is they want choice. Our respondents want to feel that they can choose from several options, even though in the reality, the dollar amount is largely the same. And I might tell you that, you know, hey, Seema, I'll send you a $25 Visa gift card or an Amazon card. You know, you actually might have a big preference as to which one it is. You might not be an Amazon shopper, as we learned last week in some sessions. There's, there's not everybody loves Amazon. But at the same time, you know, sort of a choice in how they can get the incentive is huge. Um, and there's also different intrinsic values for how people get incentives. So working with them on if cold, hard cash is really preferred ways to get closer to that. And then also ways to work with partners that could turn it into a variety of different gift cards. So people have spoken within the Schlesinger community and they really want choice. 
You know what's interesting? When I did a survey a few years ago among uh, different age groups as to why they participate in surveys and take surveys, and I, I guess it's intuitive, but I never really thought about it. But like the older age category, the reason they participate in surveys, obviously they have the time, sure. but it's their way of keeping up with what's happening in the market. Like what new products are coming out or what's the terminology or lingo in, in message testing. I found that to be really interesting that Incentives obviously are important, but it is, they felt like they were keeping up or almost leading edge because they're taking these surveys and finding what people are asking about. Yeah. I've never thought about that. And it it makes a lot of sense. I'd say that the other thought I have on incentives is it's really tough. And I think we as an industry need to keep watching to make sure, in my opinion, just a couple of factors that the incentives do sort of compensate them for the time and they feel glad to get it, but it doesn't reach a point where, wow, I'm going to quit my job and take 500 surveys a day. I mean, none of us want that, especially our clients. And so I just always feel like that is something that I don't have a perfect answer for other than just continuing to check on things like reconciliation rates and survey dropouts. And also to some degree, making sure the incentives are variable based on the audience and and certainly the amount of time that they're asked to spend taking surveys is really critical that you reward people. The longer they stay in, the more of a reward they deserve. At the same time, you want to make sure those resort, those rewards feel more like a stipend and less like a second paycheck. And I think as long as we all do that, we'll be in good shape going forward. So how do we broaden our ecosystem of people who take surveys? Have you had any thoughts on that? I was going to ask you, I was going to flip it and see what I could write down and take from you. Well, I think, you know, step one, just acknowledging that by nature, it's hard. And I think it's an important thing to start. And I've heard a lot of other folks on podcasts and speaking at conferences that, you know, if you went to a cocktail party with your friends and family and asked how many people take surveys, it's probably a smaller number. So I think step one is just identifying that it's not necessarily everybody in the US or in the world that will do it regardless of the topic or panel. So knowing that it's finite, One thing that we've done to try to increase that is sort of just with a relative balance between the surveys and a special community that the folks may come from. So a few years ago, we started architecting our own panel management software. And to be candid, totally selfishly for us, as we got bigger and we started doing more programmatic sampling, and we knew that we wanted to have different incentives, variable the incentive amount and how incentives are distributed and disseminated out, we started looking around to see what software was available and didn't find a whole lot that needed, that fit everything we needed to do. So we built our own system but we made it a SaaS-based system that clients can use. So we've got uh, just under, I think, a dozen or so clients using it globally. And we have big eyes to expand that in the next coming quarter. So hopefully folks that have a panelist or a database, they could then quickly connect with the software and offer these people the option to either incentivize a charity of their choice, take a personal reward. So sort of tying that to interests outside of research is one approach that we're taking. That's cool. I like that. I think you talked about this in the beginning. It's you know, from a technology perspective, how do we hook into different audiences that traditionally we wouldn't get through, you know, affiliate networks or whatever the traditional sources are. And I guess the big thing that for me is, you know, I think it is bad when we don't take surveys. We need to take surveys, right? So we need to improve the user experience to say, okay, would I take this survey versus, you know, just expecting somebody else to take it. Yeah. And I need to do a better job of that personally to really carve out some time and do that more. And it is interesting. I think when we talk to clients about, you know, that may have a database and are interested in sort of maybe using software and trying to monetize it or see how 
Many of their folks would take surveys for their own purposes as well. What the one thing that I find out early on in the conversation, not by asking, but you can just tell is, do they understand the survey taking environment and broadly, or are they brand, brand new to this? And I think, you know, recently in the last couple of weeks, I've had calls with two potential clients that mentioned that they had signed up to various panels to start taking surveys. So they kind of knew the experience. And that's a bit different from somebody that doesn't and thinks that an entire database will all start taking surveys tomorrow. So, but yes, I think the only way to improve it is to know. So to use the restaurant analogy, you got to eat at your own place. And I think we all have to do that ourselves. So. That's so true. Ted, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time. I always enjoy when we catch up. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. Teams are in flux, but you still have to get your research in field. Partnership with Paradigm Sample means you get our expert focus on every detail of your project. We have access to over 1 million consumers and many business professionals who are eager to voice their opinions and participate in traditional and non-traditional online studies, whether it comes to sampling, programming and hosting services or consultation. We are agile and quick to meet your needs. Visit ParadigmSample.com today. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.